0: he is alive three simple words a mere nine letters if they allowed you to to play sentences in scrabble it would be worth a lousy 15 points it's a, it's a simple sentence, consisting of a, a masculine pronoun, the most used verb in the entire English language, an adjective. yet those words, they are the focal point of human history. Those words are the ones that, that delineate antiquity from the common error. They are the fundamental proposition upon which the largest faith system in the world rises and falls, and whether or not Jesus is alive makes all of the difference in the world. This weekend, we are celebrating the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the very foundation of our Christian faith. And the fact that Jesus has arisen is so important to Christianity that the Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, If what we read in our Bible is the product of of some vivid imaginations of first century creative writers, or the deception of a a twisted band of, of religious zealots, then you and I and two billion other people on the face of the planet are absolutely wasting our time. But that's not where the Apostle Paul ends. In verse 20, this is what he declares. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul, who who was a, a, a zealous first century Jewish religious leader, who was absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead, who acted upon that conviction by persecuting Christians. He came to realize in no uncertain terms that Jesus, in fact, was alive. And he came to that conclusion because he personally encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and it radically transformed his life. The one who made it his personal mission to destroy Christianity in its infancy— the one who entered the homes of, of Christian men and women and drugged them off and threw them into jail, the one who breathed threats and murders against the early church. After personally experiencing Jesus, he was radically transformed. And he becomes this, this man who is Christianity's greatest missionary, church planner, and apologist, being used by God to write over uh, write half of the 27 books of the New Testament. But Paul wasn't the only person in the first century to encounter the risen Christ. The passage that we're going to explore uh, this morning details another encounter that that two men had on on the day of the resurrection with the risen Jesus. But this passage, it does more than just uh, explain the encounter that they had. It also speaks of how you and I are to live as a result of that encounter. Now, before we read it, I want to echo the words of the Reverend Billy Graham that was in that video that we just watched. He said this, I believe that there is more proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than almost any other fact in human Roman history. I don't believe there is a fact in ancient history today so well proven as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I could not agree any more strongly with Graham's assertion But my intent this morning is not to prove to you Jesus' resurrection because it is simply not necessary. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has been proven countless times by historians and theologians and archaeologists and researchers and honest seekers of truth over the course of the last 20 centuries. Likewise, it has been proven by the changed lives of men and women like you and me for the past 2,000 years. And as such, any person who is intellectually honest and humble and they take an unbiased look at the evidence, they too will conclude that Jesus lived and died and bodily was raised again. So there is no need to prove to you the resurrection because the evidence is there if you're willing to pursue it. So instead what I want to do is I want to show you what the reality of the resurrection does for those who embrace Jesus through repentance and faith. And in order to do so, we're going to take a look in Luke chapter 24. If you have a Bible with you uh, here in the room or at home, please open it up to Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at the first, first verse through the 35th verse. I realize it's a lot of reading, but we need the context. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Don't hesitate to, to ask one of your neighbors to pass one down to you. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. If you are able, please stand in honor of God's word. at what had happened that very day two of them were going to a village named emmaus about seven miles from jerusalem and they were taking talking with each other about all these things that had happened and while they were talking and discussing together jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So, they went to stay with them. so he went to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, there are three principles, three lessons that I, I believe that we can learn from this account And I want to give them to you right up front briefly as I've been doing over the last couple months and and then uh, we'll go through and expand each one. The first is this. The pain of the present obscures the reality of the resurrection. The pain that you and I experience in the present, it, it obscures the reality of the resurrection in our lives. The second is this. The sting of suffering always precedes the grandeur of glory. I had to find two G's that work together. The sting of suffering precedes the grandeur of glory. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, the Word of God reveals the Son of God. The Word of God reveals the Son of God. So let's go through these briefly. The pain of the present obscures the reality of the resurrection. The weeks leading up to uh, the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ were a roller coaster of emotions to his followers. On Palm Sunday, the week before the crucifixion, Jesus is heralded as a hero by his followers as he makes his way into the city of Jerusalem. But by Thursday evening, everything has been turned upside down. Jesus is is betrayed by one of his closest friends. And as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, the Jewish religious leaders of that day dispatch a a a group of basically religious police officers to arrest Jesus. And on Friday, Jesus is convicted of blasphemy by a corrupt religious court. He is brutally scourged and beaten by the Roman soldiers. He is sentenced to death, death upon a, a Roman cross, which occurs mere hours after his conviction. There's no uh, 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 appeal to the the circuit court. There's no appeal to the Supreme Court. There's no one protesting. Hours after his conviction, he is crucified. And when he takes his last breath, his desecrated body is taken down from the cross, and hastily put into a tomb before Friday's sunset ushers in the Jewish Passover. And there wasn't even enough time for, for this man to receive a, a proper burial. And from Friday night through Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, until the early mornings, Hours of Sunday morning, Jesus' small band of followers, those who are left, huddled together, attempting to process all that has happened. And I want you to think of the emotional turmoil that these people must have been experiencing. They watched firsthand the brutal torture an execution not only of their leader, but of their friend. They were surrounded by mobs of people cheering on the Roman executioners. They saw the glee in the eye of the Jewish religious leaders as they rejoiced over Jesus' death. Probably about 15 years ago, Mel Gibson produced a movie called The Passion of the Christ. And I remember going to that movie with a a friend of mine who has passed away since then, and Gordon and I were sitting in, in, in the theater, and I'm watching this For the very first time. And and I can remember the thing that kept going on and on in my mind. And I think that I was actually speaking it uh, literally out of my mouth, but quietly, I kept saying to myself as I watched all this Would you please stop hurting him? Please. Please stop hurting him. I I think uh, I can remember that to this day the emotional turmoil that was inside of me. And, And it was just a movie. It wasn't the real thing. Think about what it must have been like to witness that firsthand. But that's just the beginning of the trauma. What must it have been like, huddled in that room, wondering to to yourself in those horrific hours leading up to Sunday morning, trembling, wondering if if they're next? Would the, the Jewish religious leaders, would the Roman soldiers, would they come to arrest them? Would they be the ones who get beaten? Would they be nailed upon a cross? Would they receive the same horrific treatment that Jesus received? And to make matters worse, not only does their friend and leader die on that cross, so does their hope. Look at verse 21 of Luke 24, and we get to see that. The men say to Jesus, but we had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Their hope is gone. And even though Jesus has been with them for three years, even though he repeatedly explained to them that his mission wasn't to liberate them from the bondage of their Roman overlords, but to free them from the bondage of their sin, they still didn't get it. They believed that, that Jesus had come to, to solve some kind of temporal political problem with the Romans. And they couldn't grasp that he had really come to solve their eternal spiritual problem with sin. And you know, we do the exact same thing today. We look for Jesus to solve the political problems of America, to solve the, the political problems of the world. Jesus Jesus came what? Not to solve our political problems. He came to solve our sin problem. That's the reason why he lived and died and rose again. And so as these two disciples of Jesus embark on this seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus, they talk with one another in order to, to make sense of all of this. You know how that works. Two of you have seen some kind of tragedy or something bad has happened, and you want to talk it out. You want to understand what actually occurred, and it's so helpful. And during their journey, as they're talking these things out, the risen Jesus joins them, but they are unable to recognize who he is. And he talks with them. And he asks them about their conversation. And he notices that, that both of them are sad. And one of them, a man named Cleopas, responds to Jesus by saying, How is it possible that you are unaware of all the stuff that just went down? It, it would be like on, on September 13th. Someone having no idea in 2001 that, that the, the World Trade Centers were attacked. You're like, where have you been? What have you been doing? And clearly, these men are overcome with grief and they're suffering. And then, in the midst of their grief and suffering, they say something absolutely stunning. Look at verses 22 to 24. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see. Now think about that for a moment. The tomb is empty. The body is gone. The women, women these men actually knew, have seen a vision of angels who declare that Jesus is alive. Some of their friends, they go back to the tomb to confirm actually what the women saw. And yet, these two guys... They they don't get it. Now, Now, why would that be the case? Because the pain of their present obscured the reality of the resurrection. All of the pain and the suffering that they had experienced, it had clouded their vision, and they are not alone. The very same thing happens to you and me. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways. Life is hard. It's the reality. It is hard to live life. Sure, there are some pleasant times that that occur in life, but a lot of times life is extremely hard. Collectively, we're all in the middle of a pandemic. Regardless of what you believe or don't believe about the pandemic, people have died. And they continue to do so. Many have lost their jobs or their work schedules have been greatly reduced. People have been holed up in their homes for the last year. Many... Of, them, of you are watching on our live stream right now. You get that. You understand what it's like to, to, to be home, to not be able to go out, to not do the things that you want to do. People are working from home. Groceries are get, getting delivered to our home, or we can go to the parking lot of Giant and have them actually bring the, the groceries out to us. People have not seen their loved ones. They're, they've had drive-by birthdays and graduations. I've actually done virtual funerals. People attend church via live stream with a mask permanently affixed to your face. And then you add to that racial tensions that continue to boil here in America, the unabating political upheaval and division in our country, the the growing lack of trust in in government at every level of government, the real and and present danger to the rights of women and parents and children from this thing called the Equality Act that is sitting in the Senate right now, the geopolitical threat of, of, of the Russians at this very moment, massing armor on on the border with Ukraine. Putin saying that that if NATO engages it, that will escalate everything. China violating Taiwan's airspace and, and, and the sea around them, flexing their muscles. And then on top of all of that stuff, You throw in the personal things that you and I battle with. Relationships that are imploding or have already imploded. Being single and wanting to be married. Being married and wanting to be single. Being childless and desperately wanting a child. Or being the parent of a child who's struggling physically or emotionally or mentally or spiritually. Having loved ones who who are battling a a, a life-threatening disease. Aging parents, financial issues, mental illness, kids doing school online trying to move forward in life while being saddled with a criminal conviction. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And in the midst of all of it, we get so focused on the pain, so focused on on the suffering, so focused on all of these things that are ultimately temporal, that we are blinded To the eternal joy and the eternal hope of the resurrection. And we miss the fact that not only has Jesus risen from the dead, not only has he conquered sin and death. Not only has he he gone before us and and prepared a place for us in, in heaven for those who through faith and repentance have received him as Lord and Savior, but just like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is alive, and he is with us. Even if we don't, yeah, you can clap. You guys clap for Ben. You never clap for me. What is up with that? I'm offended. He's with us. Even if we don't recognize him, even if we don't understand what he is doing, the fact of the matter is the truth of the resurrection is independent of our circumstances and our perspective of life would be so incredibly, radically different if we ultimately embrace that. Now, the second truth that we learn from this passage is tied to the first. And it's this, the sting of suffering precedes the grandeur of glory. After patiently listening to these two men recount the events of the preceding days, Jesus says something that could be considered shocking, if not actually even rude. This is what he says in verses 25 and 26. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, when you and I call someone a fool, that's not really considered a a polite thing to do and typically what we are doing is we are commenting on one's intellectual ability our perception of this person may be that they're stupid unintelligent uneducated but that wasn't how that term was used in the first century in the first century calling someone a fool It wasn't an intellectual assessment of them. It was actually a spiritual assessment. You see, the foolishness of the men traveling on the road to Emmaus came from their failing to believe all that the Old Testament taught regarding the Messiah. And for centuries leading up to the time of Christ, The Jews believed that the Messiah would come as a a conquering king, that he was going to be this political figure. And they believed that he would not only be victorious in an eternal spiritual sense, but he would also be victorious in a temporal political sense. And they never, ever expected that the Messiah would ultimately suffer. But a suffering Messiah was exactly what the Old Testament prophets proclaimed. Yet somehow, they missed it. Look at Isaiah 53. Uh, Again, another long passage, but I want to read it for context. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, when you and I, when we read this prophecy, we read it on the other side of the resurrection. So we read this thing, and it very clearly describes to us the the suffering of the Messiah. We see Jesus in that passage. But when the ancient Jews read that passage they didn't see the Messiah. They saw themselves. They saw the the nation of Israel. They saw the oppression that they experienced for 400 years under the Egyptian slavery that they were in. They saw 40 years of wandering in the desert. They saw the horror of the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities. They saw the the conquering of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And in Jesus' day, they saw the oppression by the Romans. You see, a suffering Messiah, it never even crossed their mind Because they were so incredibly focused on their own suffering. And that is exactly why in Matthew 16, when Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he was going to suffer many things from the chief priests and the scribes, and he would be killed, and on the third day arise, that Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. This is what Peter says to Jesus after Jesus says, I'm going to die. Jesus says, far be it for you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And the rebuke that Peter gives Jesus, Jesus turns and gives to Peter, and he says this, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, prior to entering glory, Jesus was going to suffer. Because in God's economy, suffering always precedes glory. Just a brief glance through the Old Testament should should help us to understand. You just got to look at some of the the characters in the Old Testament. And and you will see how, how suffering permeated their lives. Job. No one in the the Old Testament suffered more than this poor guy, Job. David, he's anointed king of Israel. He is chosen by God, yet he is hunted down like an animal by Saul. He's constantly running and hiding, living in a cave, surviving on on whatever uh, food that his friends can actually scavenge together for him. Moses, he frees his people from, from slavery in Egypt. Yet he ends up in a desert, wandering for 40 years. One, not only W-A-N, wandering, but W-O-N, wandering. Wondering where he's going to get food and water for all of these people from. And the people, even when he does supply, or God actually supplies, what happens? The people grumble the entire time. Naomi, she loses her husband. And then within a span of 10 years, she loses her only two sons. So it shouldn't have come to a surprise to these two men, or for that matter to any of the first century Jews, that Jesus would have to suffer before entering glory. But somehow they missed it. And as much as Jesus had to suffer so too do his followers. You see, suffering for the Christian isn't a possibility. It is a promise straight from the mouth of our Savior. In other words, the pain of the present that obscures the reality of the resurrection, it has been guaranteed by Jesus. Someone once told me, they said, Mike, if you're a Christian, you are either in the midst of suffering, you are coming out of suffering, or you are ultimately going into suffering. Because suffering is simply a part of the Christian experience. Now, if you're a a television preacher right now, you will not be saying these things that does not sell books, doesn't get people on your television channel, doesn't send them to your website. That does not not make people happy. But the reality is suffering is part and parcel of being a Christian. But God doesn't have us suffer or allow us to suffer for the sake of suffering. There's always a greater purpose. And that greater purpose is that God might be glorified in our Lives because it's in the midst of suffering that we come to know God in ways that we would have never ever known Him if we had not suffered. For example, if we never experienced sorrow, we will never ever really know what God's comfort looks like. If we didn't experience loss, we we wouldn't fully understand God's provision if we didn't struggle with sin, we would never really know what God's forgiveness actually looks like. If we weren't weak, we wouldn't ever see God's strength. And if we didn't know rejection, we would never ever be able to appreciate God's acceptance. You see, every struggle that God allows us to experience is designed specifically so that we get to know him better in the pro- and in the process, what? He is ultimately glorified. But God, he's not the only one that gets glorified in the midst of our suffering. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You see, our experience on this earth, folks, it is finite. It will end one day. And so too will our sufferings. They too are finite they too will end one day. And what is on the other side of suffering for men and women who have repented of their sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? It's eternity. Eternity in the presence of Jesus in all his glory, a glory which he ultimately graciously shares with us. And knowing that doesn't make our suffering go away but it certainly puts it into perspective. And that brings us to the final principle from this passage that I want to share with you, that the Word of God reveals the Son of God. Up to this point, these two guys walking along the road, they are completely oblivious that the guy that they're actually talking with is Jesus and it isn't until verse 27 that they began to sense that something special is actually happening here and here's the special thing that was actually happening verse 27 and beginning with Moses and all the prophets and there's a reason why I have the all bolded and underlined he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Using this, the Old Testament, because that was the Bible in Jesus' day. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. Using this, Jesus begins to help them fully understand who the Messiah is and what the Messiah is ultimately up to. Now, I want you to notice something extremely important. The extremely important thing is the alls that I have underlined. You see, Jesus isn't just using a portion of the Old Testament. He's not just using a portion of the prophets. He is using all of the scriptures, all of the prophets to share about the Messiah with these men. And it's absolutely critical that you and I get this, because there are two ways to approach the Bible. The first is the moralistic way. And sadly, it's the primary way that the people, people approach the Bible. What happens is, is they see the Bible as some kind of moral guide for living. It's a a list of rules to be followed to ensure that God would ultimately be pleased with us. A way to earn God's favor. A a method to be made right by God by committing oneself to to some kind of moral improvement. And this is the way that that the, the first century Jewish leaders read the Old Testament. This is the way the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they approached the Bible. To them, the Bible was was a bunch of rules designed for human beings to earn a right standing with God. And they were so convinced of that that they actually added rules on top of that so that people could, could earn their way to the God of the universe. But when one embraces that perspective, the Bible becomes all about us. The commands, they they become about us. The worship, it becomes about us. The prophecies become about us. The narratives become about us. Let me give you an example of how this works. I I, I borrowed this example from, from Pastor Tim Keller. Consider David's encounter with a giant Goliath. Recorded in 1 Samuel 17. The typical church or Sunday school or Bible study application goes. Something like this. So you bring the, all the kids together and you, and you put them in a room or you got a sermon going on and you tell them what's going on in the account. You got, you got the Israelites on this side, you got the Philistines on this side. One's on a mountain, the other's on a mountain. There's a big valley in between them. They're going to go to war together. The Philistines, they don't want to waste all their guys. They've got this giant by the name of Goliath. And so they send Goliath out into the middle of the valley. And Goliath taunts the Israelites, and he says, hey, send out your champion. We'll fight together. If I win, you serve us. If, if he wins, you ser- we serve you. And the Israelites, are all shaking in their boots because they got nobody like Goliath, right? And, and so, so no one volunteers until this, this scrawny little kid by the name of David volunteers. And David goes out, and he wipes out Goliath. And you explain this to, to the kids. and You explain it to the adults. And then here's the application. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. So when you encounter a giant in your life, be like David. Put faith in the Lord and you'll be able to overcome any obstacle that comes your way. That's the teaching. You've heard it, hopefully not here, but you've heard it. Now do you see how that is all about us? We need to put our faith in God and when we can, then we can slay giants. That's the message. And on the surface, you know, it's kind of inspirational. It kind of makes sense. And then you go out there and you try to slay Goliath and he crushes you. And you're like, what's up with that? You see, a moralistic approach to the Bible, that's how the ancient Jewish leaders saw the Old Testament and that's the way that people look at the Bible now. It's all about doing the right things, having enough faith, And not doing the wrong things, breaking the commandments so that I can earn my way to God. And why do people flee from the Bible? Because they read these commands and and, and they see that you're not supposed to do adultery or or that you're not supposed to steal or you're not supposed to take God's name in vain or you're supposed to do this, that, or the other thing. They look at us and say, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. That's not how I'm programmed. I want to do my own thing. And the reality is this. We can't do any of that stuff. We're incapable of doing any of that stuff. That's why those rules are put there, to remind us you're incapable. It's not about us. And so here's what happens. People, they they look at that stuff, And because they've been taught so improperly, they leave. They kick it to the curb. And then they go and they pursue the things of this world. And the things of this world always, always disappoint. They may seem good for a while, but the wisdom of this world is folly. But notice what Jesus does with the scriptures when he explains it to these two men. He approaches the Old Testament in in a gospel-centered, a Christ-centered, a Messiah-centered manner rather than a moralistic way. He shows them how the entirety of the Old Testament is designed to not be about us, but to ultimately be about him, about what Jesus is doing, about where Jesus is going, and about what Jesus will ultimately do in the future. And when we approach David's encounter with a giant Goliath from a Christ-centered perspective, everything, everything changes. Here's what happens. None of the Israelites want to fight Goliath. Why? Because they're too stinking weak. They're incapable of winning on their own. What do they need? They need a substitute, they need someone to fight in their place because they can't do it. So who goes? David goes. He's a boy. He's one who is weak. And what we read in the text, he's actually what? Despised. Where have we heard that word before? And he goes what? He goes on behalf of the entire army. One person representing everybody else. And if David loses, the army loses. And if David wins, the army wins. And God uses David's apparent weakness to destroy Goliath. And the Israelites win. Why? Not because of what they have done but because what the substitute that God sent had actually done. Do you see how different the story is? Now the story is about Jesus and not about us. And the application becomes we can't beat the giant of sin on our own. We need someone to fight in our place. And folks, I am reminded of this every single day in my life as I battle with sin in my life. I constantly fail. I constantly let myself down. If I've gotta earn my way to God on my own merits, I'm destroyed. But if Jesus does it for me, I've got hope. And it's the word of God that actually points us to the Son of God. Suddenly, everything in the Bible, when you approach it that way, it all points to Jesus. It all begins to make sense. And that's exactly what happens to these guys. Jesus shows them how the entirety of the Old Testament points to him. And as Jesus does that, as these men begin to see Jesus in the entirety of the Old Testament, eventually they're ready to see Jesus not only in the Bible but with their own eyes. Listen once again to how it concludes. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And Jesus acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day now is far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Where had the guys seen that before? The obvious place is to say, well, they saw it in in the Lord's Supper, but they weren't there. And there's no wine in this account. Where does Jesus break bread? Where does it become apparent that he is the Messiah? The feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000. All of a sudden, Jesus takes them back to this incredible miracle that only he could pull off. And their eyes are open. And he lets them see him for who he really is just for a moment. And he vanishes from their sight. And what does all of this teach us? It teaches us that if you want to see Jesus, you find him in the Word of God. Every single portion of this. You'll come to Living Water and you'll get glimpses of Jesus, but those glimpses that you get are provided by fallible people. You'll engage in a small group, and you'll get glimpses of Jesus, but even the best small group has human leaders and is fallible. You can go and you can read books, and and you will get glimpses of Jesus, but the authors are fallible. If you really want to find Jesus, this is where you find Jesus. Why does the world want this to go away? Why have have people over the last 2,000 years tried to get rid of this? Because this is where you find Jesus. You open these pages of this book, which the Bible itself tells us what? Is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit, revealing the, the, the hearts, laying us open and naked and bare before the God of the universe. This is where you will find Jesus. And the more that you read this, the more that that you study this, the more of Jesus you will see. Because he has given this to us so that he might be known. And the more that you know Jesus, the more hope and the more joy you will have in the midst of your suffering and your struggles. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are good. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, I learn more about you uh, in preparing these things than uh, I can ever imagine your God. And I thank you for this opportunity that we could come together, that we could could worship you through singing, through prayer, Lord, through the exposition of your scripture, Heavenly Father. And Lord, as we get ready to, to sing this last song and leave this place, I I praise you, Lord, for the worship that we will have when we gather together with with family and friends and loved ones as we celebrate the balance of this glorious resurrection day. And Lord, for those who are in this room right now who may have never, ever come to to know you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Heavenly Father, that, that, Lord, they would seek after you. And Lord, I pray that you would, in your power, draw them to yourselves. And as you did with these men, that you might open their eyes and reveal to them through the scriptures the hope that comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Not only hope for this life, but the life to come. Lord, we praise you and we glorify you and we magnify you. For you are good and you are alive. And you deserve all the praise and glory. And it's through your son's name we pray and all God's people said amen. Amen.